When is the last time you listened to a podcast about web development, web design, and small business and didn't fall asleep? Yes, we cover web development, web design, and small business, but like actual human beings with personalities. If you're a beginner, we're not going to talk over your head. It's more like asking your buddy for help. We have guests, we have fun, and let me tell you, these two can get off on a tangent. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to HTML All The Things Podcast. This is Matt Lawrence and Mike Curran. That's right, everybody. We are back, and this is the HTML All The Things Podcast. This episode is titled, Get In School, Good Code Reviews. And it's PHP back. So we have a bit of a variety episode for you today. We're going to be talking about some things that have been on our mind, been on the community's mind, kind of check in on these various things, various topics. So if this sounds interesting to you and you want to support the show, you can go check us out on the, on that Patreon, leave a review rating on your podcast app, join us in our Discord server or share this with your friends. And uh, if you do want to support the show in another way, we do have a Scrimba affiliate link. It does net you a discount. So if you want to learn how to do web development and Python and I think a couple other things as well, you can go check out their library for free. And if you use our link to purchase a Scrimba plan, you can get net yourself a discount and learn with an interactive code media media player. So you can interact with the code as the person's teaching it to you and you can play with it, break it, whatever as the person is writing it right on your screen. So, without further ado, Mike, you are the fine author of this episode. You'd like to start out with, should Git be taught in schools? So, what do you think? All right. Uh, Thank you for that great introduction, fine author, um, (laughs) with this, like, janky, like, scrambled notes here. Uh, But, yes, uh, I did kind of pick these topics. Uh, They are... Hopefully, somewhere, someone in the zeitgeist, that's my goal, is to kind of explain our thoughts. This is what kind of, you know, our opinions, our experience with the more zeitgeisty topics in web development right now. So, one thing that kind of popped up, this is probably a couple of weeks ago now. Again, this is a cyclical thing. Why is Git not taught in schools more often, right? Matt and I have talked about this many times on the podcast where we've literally went through our entire schooling without touching Git. Um, I think it was mentioned a couple times in like notebooks and stuff, but no, no one took us through and forced us to use it. So we never learned it because we were like, well, we have OneDrive, we have Google Drive. Why do we even need it? We didn't even have a good reason to use it. Um, and in my opinion, that was a little bit of a – it just doesn't make sense to not teach Git in my opinion. And I, I'm curious to get your thoughts on that, Matt. But like Git is not a very complex process. I think honestly, it's a one day lesson with practice during that day. Like, so the, the teacher will give you some instructions on how Git works and maybe give you some history of Git or something. And then they would just like, here's some steps, follow these steps to create a repository, attach your repository to your, you know, VS code or whatever ID you're using and do these simple actions like commit, add, uh, push, just like the basic Git functionality. And after that, in my opinion, like it's enough for you to start using it, right? You're not going to be an expert. And I don't think you need to be an expert in school to use Git. Most of, most of the stuff you're using is your own, like you're, but you are going to work in group projects. And like the fact that we didn't use Git in group projects made no sense, like as in university or anything. Like I, I think I did start using it a little bit in university because we actually started the job as I was migrating, as I was getting another degree. And because we started the job, we realized that there are things that Git does better than OneDrive uh, and we started to migrate to it. But like, why not just have that one day lesson and just add it add it as a thing that people use? Like it's, it's literally like, hey, instead of using OneDrive, use this. That's all it is. Yes, there's a few more commands. Yes, it's a little bit more complicated. But overall, it's going to make you a better developer and ready more ready to be in the industry so yeah matt what what are your thoughts well my thoughts with git and this is maybe more of a lesson plan idea than than an opinion but um i guess my opinion first and foremost is yeah i think that git should be shown off in schools i do understand why it may not be 
in our, in our particular case in college, we went into, uh, so computer engineering technology, which was a mix of hardware and software. And so you touch on the hardware, you touch on the software, and there's not much time. So I kind of understand why they didn't do Git. Uh, to an, to an extent, I mean, they could have kind of shoehorned it in and probably should have in the way that I'm about to actually say with my lesson plan sort of idea. But I do understand it to an extent because we had a web development course, but it was still, it was pretty dated, but it was kind of taught that way. It was sort of like, here's HTML, here's a little bit of CSS, here's some PHP. And then that was like sort of the really basic stuff. It wasn't the modern way to do it. And then we would modernize as we would go through the course. So we kind of learned the old way of doing stuff. And sort of slowly increase not only our skill and complexity of our websites and web apps, but we also kind of learned the more modern ways to do things here and there as well. And so I think they were trying to gradually teach us a little bit of web development because that was our only web development course. And I really probably don't even really use any of the knowledge from that anymore. Um, and so they probably thought, okay, there's no more time to add Git in because we're, what other things were we coding? We were coding a little bit of uh, microcontrollers and those type of things with assembly uh, or with C, I believe. And so you could still use Git there though. Like, yes, you could. And so that's what I was actually about to say is I think that teaching it as a full lesson makes a lot of sense if it's going to be used everywhere, but because we were being shoehorned in, I think that Git can actually be shoehorned in and I think it can be shoehorned in gradually situationally. So what I mean by that is this is sort of a rough idea, but you would have the students do a project of some sort. Like it's like, you know, a my first app type project. And then you would ask them to make modifications. And some of the modifications would be classified as dangerous is what I would call them. And that is that they're going to have to go in and break what they did. And they're brand new. So they're not, they don't really remember what they did. So you're going to have people naturally commenting out things that they did, copying and pasting those comments, taking the comments away. So now they have their old code and they're going to try to manipulate it. And if they break it, they can always go back to that original code that they commented out, right? And start again type of thing, right? That's kind of what ha- naturally happens. That is something that Git allows you to sort of circumvent is, you know, that commenting thing is great really quick. But when you have big, you know, big, like, sections, let's say, of code that are commented out, like here, the 10 lines here, 15 lines here, 12 lines here, and a, you know, a, a five line function turns into a 15 line function and 10 of its comment, old commented code that you've effectively version controlled. Then you can say to the kids, okay, how many people, like how many, how many uh, people here, how many students here have, you know, commented out their old code to ensure that they had a nice baseline to go back to if they really messed it up? I, I'm sure a lot of people would. And then it would be like, okay, this is where Git comes in. And I wouldn't even have necessarily a lesson on Git. I would have a situational lesson on Git. So I'd be like, okay, everyone sign up for, you know, whatever it is, GitLab, your Bitbucket, your, your GitHub. Let's think about a scenario here. Well, in, in a way, you're backing up your code in a, at a particular version. So if we were to do, let's say lesson one, we would push, we finish lesson one and we push lesson one up. That effectively saves it like a OneDrive, right? You would compare it to like a one-to-one situation with like something that they're familiar with. So like a backup software, like a OneDrive or a Google Drive. Then you would say, okay, that's it. And I wouldn't talk about anything else. I wouldn't talk about branches. I wouldn't talk about this and that. I would let the situations come up naturally. And I would mention like, yeah, Git is a lot more complicated than this, but this is how we're going to do it. And it would just be sort of like at the end of the day, we just do a little thing on Git when the situation calls for it. Group project comes in. Fantastic. Okay. Well, this person wants to do something and this person wants to do something. Maybe we need branches or these two people want to work on something together. We need pull requests, right? Then you start talking about the different parts of Git, the different parts of Git separately, because to me anyway, Git is, you know, quite intuitive and and, and, relatively easy to understand, but I'm also not struggling necessarily with the syntax still. And I feel like if you're struggling with the syntax, it's like, uh oh, but if you use Git to assist in the struggling with the syntax, and that means that there's situations that come up in which the management of the code, the logistics of the code, not the syntax, not, you know, you declaring variables, you being confused what an equal sign is in the code, you know, none of that. You're literally like, holy crap, I got a lot of comments or man, this is annoying. And I, I just want to back this up real quick. And you have like, you know, V1, V2, V3 in different folders. Once the logistics are out of control, then you bring Git in and you say, okay, this is what you do. In order, so you, don't, so you don't need to do that anymore. So you can like you can pull down lesson one again, or you can view it, you know, online. You can view lesson one, and you can copy and paste lesson one back into what you're doing. And 
you have it all saved. I think that situationally, that's how we should have been taught it. If you're in like a programming centric program or a program that has a lot of programming courses, maybe then, you know, a full Git plan, like what you're saying, makes a lot of sense. But for us, when we were in such a low level code is what they called it. And that is what it was. Low level coding program. I think that they think, oh, Git's too advanced. But like you and I, Mike, like you even mentioned it. We had, we had group projects that were a pain. You're literally mer- manually merging files. You, we also had, you know, V1, V2, V3, V4 in our OneDrives or in our, our school gave us like sort of a shared OneDrive like thing. So we would have those in there and we would be like, oh, hey, I've, I've finished my changes. That's in V2 dash Matt. You know, who's got V2 dash Mike, you know, dot, dot, dash Mike dash who, you know, whoever else. It's a mess. And so I think that just to fix the logistics, that's how I would do it. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're not wrong. Uh, we did have a very limited amount of programming courses and adding on even even though Git isn't super complicated, it does add another layer on top of what you're learning in the sense that like you're going through a lesson, you're going through your code and you know, part of the process is maybe committing and maybe you screw up on the committing part and your remote isn't working or whatever. And then now, now the teacher has to go in and like individually, not only explain what the code is doing wrong, but now he has to battle the Git issues as well. So it does add that extra little bit of complexity. Um, I think it's still worth it to add it. And I think that like it still would benefit at the end of the day, but I can see them making that decision of being like, you know what, this isn't a programming, like we're not, teaching them to become programmers, we're teaching them to become engineers, then we're removing the Git part. So maybe there was some logic there. Um, I still think it was kind of just like a, we, we don't want to do this period and just go forward. Oh, <laughs> like, to the be, the to way be our clear. course is running, yeah. No, to be clear, I agree with you. Yeah, yeah. You want, I, you want it to be done in a, in a more like lesson-y way, which I kind of like. Uh, show the reason to use Git, right? Like like how, how we had it. Essentially, yeah. you're, you're giving the lesson of what we learned is like Matt and I would sit there and we would overwrite each other's code. It only happened a few times, but the few times was enough for us to be like, yeah, we're not doing this again. <laughs> That's too much of a pain in the ass. So like force that on the on, on the uh, students so that they understand that, hey, yeah, no, I'm not dealing without dealing with this without Git anymore. So, yeah, I kind of like that method. And and how how simple is it really to do? You know, you open up a GitHub account. Everyone has accounts at this point, hopefully in your college. And then because we were learning a low level programming, we should learn low level Git quite literally. What is a Git commit? And just have it literally written out on one of our worksheets or something or in one of our notes where it's literally like these are the commands you use. You know, you you pull down the repo. What does that mean? You're downloading it. You just have like terms with things that are common that the students would understand. You know, pulling it down. This is what this means. Committing is, you know, this. You're writing some notes on what you changed so that you know what it is that you changed when you in the. Okay, cool. Now you're pushing it. What does that mean? Oh, now you're backing it up with OneDrive. That's the equivalent, right? You're backing it up now. Okay, great. And then like, you don't worry about, cause I know people are going to get all into branches and then people are going to think, Oh, each one of my changes should be a branch because every time I made, every single time I made a change, I made a new copy of my code, right? A V1, a V1, 1.1, a V2, all in different directories on their computer. They're going to get confused with branches and that just do it situationally. And then it'll just, I think to me, it'll become naturally, you'll just like naturally associate it. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a good method. Uh, hopefully people that are creating course content are listening to Matt and will follow that to uh, create a better course for people. And to be clear, I, I do believe I've talked to a few developers out there that have come out of school recently. Git is starting to be integrated into schools. So like it, it's more common now than it was back when we were learning. Uh, and I think it's going to become more and more common inside of larger programs, including engineering programs, that Git will start being part of it. It's just strange to me that it's not as ubiquitous um, as it as it should be. And this kind of this conversation and this argument comes up every year, a couple of times a year or two. Like, hey, should Git be taught in schools? So our I think both of our answers are definitely should be uh, maybe a little bit more nuanced in a way that like, you know, it has to be taught in the right way. Moving on here, uh, the next topic that we'll cover is what makes a good code review. So I think we did have a code review episode a little bit, uh, a little while ago. Maybe we'll link that in the show notes. But I wanted to kind of pick this back up because there was a really good kind of uh, Reddit thread breaking down an article. 
And people had a lot of good points there. And I'll, I'll link the Reddit thread as well in the show notes. But essentially, um, code reviews are a complex topic. Uh, everyone does them very differently from my experience. I have worked with a few teams. I have done code reviews myself very often, and I have done a ton of, uh, and I've had a lot of code reviews done to me. And there's some really good ways to do it, and there's some really bad ways to do it. And I kind of want to outline my thoughts on what makes a good code review, and then I'll also mention the bad parts as well. So the big thing for me, and probably the number one thing, uh, ironically, is don't nitpick. Okay, so... Having it, having a code review be about like how you format your code and how you're using this if statement instead of that type of if statement, that stuff shouldn't be part of a code review, in my opinion. And this is maybe again, a kind of a, a differing opinion from a lot of different devs because most people, most, most devs that work on larger projects with a big team want their code to be very similar. And on the one hand, yes, I do agree, but there are tools that can help you do that automatically. So linting and prettier configuration, linting tools, if you set those up correctly, they'll do all the spacing for you. They'll do a lot of the like, hey, you wrote this arrow function incorrectly. They'll tell the person what they've done wrong that the code review doesn't need to catch. The code review shouldn't be about formatting the code in the exact way that the lead dev has set up because that's just exhausting for like a junior or even like any dev on the team that, hey, I, I missed a space here. I missed a semicolon. Like having 15, 20 comments of random little nitpicks, even though they're easy to fix and whatever, and maybe they do make code look a lot cleaner from file to file, they are a motivational headache. I want to put it that way. When you're when you're submitting a code review and you know that you're going to receive 20, 30 comments or you've done your best and you still receive 20 or 30 comments about stuff like that, it's going to make you less motivated and it's going to slow down the development process in general because now you're going to be spending time, developers' time, that they'll go, they'll try to go through and get less and less of those comments. And sure, that's the goal at the end of the day is making sure that your code is as uniform as possible. But are you really focused on like if a developer misses a semicolon, it doesn't affect anything in your code and now you're spent, the, the, they're spending like, you know, 10, five to 10 minutes doing just that. And then all the other stuff that adds up. There, there comes a point where your nitpicks can kind of stifle innovation as well, where people are, are, Oh, I gotta be, you know, under template Mike, if you will, if Mike's always the one that, uh, that peer reviews my code, I better do exactly like he said. And, you know, we've just talked about school with get in school. We had a teacher that used to quite literally do math factoring, like factoring in math incorrectly. And, the only way I did well on his test was I used to factor his way, which was mathematically incorrect. And Mike, Mike remembers that. And that's, that's how we did it. That's how we got the marks. And it was, it was very much like, okay, like I need these grades. I'm not going to argue. Like the the point has been argued. You know, people have brought it up. Person says it's not that way. So it's like, okay, I guess I'm just playing the game here. Now I'm trying to get as many points as possible. And am I really going to try to change the rules? Well, we tried, failed, and so like that really stifles innovation when in a peer review, because somebody might be really, you know, good at making efficient functions or really good at whatever. And they just they're a little little scatterbrained or something naturally. And they just miss miss the odd semicolon. It's like, are you really going to stifle innovation to the point for for semicolons? So now, you know, their overall output is not at 100 percent. It's now at like 86 or 80. Yep. Either set up a linter or just let it go. That's my <laughs> that that is my opinion on the nitpicks. Or fix it uh, yourself. It's a it's a bloody semicolon. Just go in there and change it. Exactly. That's a that's also another option. Like if you're if you care about formatting and the other guy doesn't, do the formatting. Run a code. Run, run whatever. Like do it yourself. I, I kind of agree with that too. You're writing uh, notes about the semicolon. Yeah. The semicolon's one keystroke. <laughs> if, if it bothers you, fix it. I like it. Uh, the next thing here, clear and concise. So a lot of times people will ramble in code reviews. And they'll spend a lot of time on one specific point. Um, you want to keep I, I, the same with comments. I kind of have the same mindset with comments is like your code reviews should be similar to how you comment your code. So it should be very clear what you're talking about. I mean, all the tools exist for you to kind of label the exact line that you have an issue with and tell the user what they don't, what you don't like or what you think is wrong with that line, right? That's 
mind like that should be the first and utter and only mindset that you have when you're going through a code review is keep this as fast as possible for yourself in terms of like writing and keep it as fast as possible and clear for the the person that you're code reviewing for so that they can fix it those are the only things giving you know the history of javascript inside of a code review and why you like you need to you need to explain why they need to make the change you don't need to give the history of why you know the people 13 years ago made that change that like over explaining is a problem making it seem like the person is dumb as well because you can be like well this has been a standard of javascript since 1972 javascript wasn't around in 1972 i'm making a point and you've done it the exact opposite of the standard this is the way it should be you can cut off all of that initial part this is the way it should be is all you need in that the description right you can say this is the way it should be because it's faster. Done. You don't need anything else, right? Like you don't need any any other explanation. You need us. Ex- you need an explanation, but it can be one word or it can be a few words. You don't need to go into the history of JavaScript. I will say something here though is that I feel like a lot of people that over-explain have been bitten before by under-explaining and had a, a, a situation go off the rails, whether it be somebody was coding. For a whole week based on what they said and they just coded up the wrong thing for some reason or did it the wrong way. And it was because, you know, you covered six out of ten bases thinking that it was direct enough and then it just wasn't. And so it is it is difficult from both sides of the of the coin where you can over explain and almost be micromanaging. But then you can also under explain and just like yeah. shoot off a text like make this prettier. What does that mean? Like, I said prettier. OK. And. You, we and I, or you and I, Mike, we have a client that's like that. No details, two word responses, but two word responses for like a month long of work. And then it becomes, well, I didn't want that. I didn't really feel like that. I just felt like it that day. It's like, well, he didn't tell me that. It's like, yeah, but you know, it's like, well, it's not a, you know. And so I, I feel like there's kind of like the two sides of the coin there a bit. And so I almost feel like if you have an under explainer, if you, if you are being explained to two and you have an under explainer, you should ask for more details. Sometimes you're just not going to get it. Under explainers will just be like, you figured out whatever. Um, and that just sucks. That's the way it is, I guess. But uh, there is a bit of a, a, a two, two way street. And I do agree. Like, we don't need to hear about, you know, in 1941, something happened. <laughs> and I just don't need to hear that. Yeah, that's a, that's, that's a good point. It, it is tough to kind of balance. It is really tough to figure out how much you should explain and how little you should speak, like how little you should do it. And it's going to be a, a trial and error thing. Um, hopefully you get feedback on your code reviews. This is something I kind of ask from all the people that I do code reviews for after a while. I'll be like, Hey, what am I doing wrong? Um, a lot of the time, just for me personally, I, I, the feedback I get is, Hey, you're not, I'm not getting enough review. Like I'm not getting enough detail, uh, because I try to be as succinct as possible. And I also just, I'm not as good at it yet as I should be. Like I, I can't find the errors until I <laughs> have like delved into the code for a while. So sometimes I'll miss something in the code review. So it, you're never going to be perfect uh, in the code review as well. And you need to kind of keep, keep getting better and better. Um, but I lean on the side of under explaining over over explaining. I, I, I think over explaining takes more of a preachy tone rather than a helpful tone. Um, at least that's my thought, but to say that to balance that explanations are key. Like you do need to explain why you're requesting something, especially when it's something that shouldn't, um, that isn't clear. So for instance, uh, someone's using a for each loop, right? And it's fine. Like it's, it's working fine, but you know that a map is faster in this particular instance, right? As a developer and that you, you've done this before. So one, like, you know, the, your response could be, Hey, switch this to a map. Right. That's clear. It's concise. But the the problem is, is like a develop. they might not know why. So this is where you do need to add a little bit of an explainer being like, hey, switch us to a map. Maps are better for this particular use case. Here's a link to a, the, the map documentation or something like that. That's to me is a much better uh, response and a much clearer one. And it's not as um Again, like I find it abrupt when there is no explanation completely. You know what I mean? Like I find it being like, hey, 
it's working. Why am I, why do you want me to switch? That, that That's what doesn't make sense. Like if you're, tr- if you're, if something is broken, then less explanation is needed. But if something is working and you want them to switch it to something else, that's an indicator for you to be like, they're probably not understanding why you want, they need to switch. You need to explain it. How about like a, uh, when you're writing your notes, you write all your notes out, even if you're over explaining. And then you go back and you proofread. I feel like with a lot of these things that are more brief, people don't think they need to proofread too much. Or if they do proofread, they're only checking for uh, typos and that. And I don't mean to sit there for a day and, you know, contemplate it and stuff like that. I'm not talking like writing, you know, uh, writing a, a novel or anything. But for me personally, even in my own show notes for this show, I over explain things to me. I'm the one that's sort of presenting the episode and I over explain things to me, but I do that intentionally. I write it out and then I'll usually either notice it as I'm writing and be like, whoa, this is long too much. Uh, you know, maybe I need to break this up into three little points instead of one big one, or I'll come back, read through it and be like, I'm like, this is actually not the point I wanted to cross and I'll just delete a whole point. And so like just a, just a bit of that proofread, it's, you know, easy. It doesn't take very long, but just a bit of that proofread allows me to go in and, you know, like under uh, over explain initially and then trim to a proper explain, I guess is the way I, is the way I see it. Yeah. I, I, I like that method. The only problem is, is like if you have a couple code reviews a day or a couple code reviews every couple days, you can really, it can really stop progress. So you need to balance being, being like fast on the code review with it like completely stopping you and making it so that you're spending, you know, hours a day code reviewing. It's possible that that could be the case if you're doing something really complex and if like, you know, you know, your team is uh, working on stuff all simultaneously. This is why you need to break up who's doing which code reviews. Like your whole, your entire team starting from your junior developer all the way to your senior should be reviewing each other's code because you're going to learn a lot that way and you're going to catch a lot more that way. Um, so it's not like the onus of the team lead or the senior developer to review everyone's code. It's everyone's responsibility to keep that going, right? So the senior developer might review more of the key components, but you should be breaking up everything else over, over your entire team. So you should be reviewing each other's code and the senior developer's code needs to be reviewed as well by anyone else, right? So you need to split it up. That helps, but also just keeping it quick also helps and keeping priorities. So this is another thing I want to talk about is like the priority of a code review isn't to find all the little nitpicks and all the little, all it isn't to change the code to the way you would write it, I should say. Okay. You need to take yourself a little bit out of the equation because sometimes the code works. There might be a more efficient way to write it, but does it matter? If you're talking about, you know, for eaching over a 20 element array and you're going to tell them to switch it to a map because it's 0.00001 nanosecond faster, that's a waste of time for you and for them. Okay. Don't do that. If it's something where it's going to be, you know, looping over 10,000 or 100,000 elements and you know it's going to save them a couple seconds, yeah, it's worth it to do that. So you need to prioritize what you want to review and what is worthwhile to change because otherwise you're going to get bogged down into literally creating copies of you in your on your team and everyone's going to have to conform or that's it and that's annoying again go going back to the nitpicks it's like you don't want to get to that point where you're stifling innovation because they are not you people are going to write code differently they they might be right as well Expect some of your reviews to come back and get 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 told, being like, hey, actually, I tried this. This is better. And you have to learn to accept those responses. You have to learn to agree with stuff that maybe isn't as efficient and isn't as clean or whatever, because you can't be bogged down into every little detail of the review. Otherwise, again, it, the whole team's going to hate you. So it's really important to kind of prioritize things. Security, right? So if you're if you're talking about a review that touches on a database connection that's supposed to be secure. Your focus, your hyper focus in that review is making sure that they're not leaking any information. That's your number one focus. Then as you move from there, you're like, okay, well, are they doing things in an efficient way that's not slowing the user down? 
And then from there, you move towards, okay, are they doing things in a way that is correct, the clean code the right way? Okay, so you prioritize down the stack. And it also works that way as you're going, like, in, in terms of how much time you have. If you don't have time to be fixing their clean code issues, then don't fix their clean code issues. Have maybe a meeting later on during the, the, the sprint or the cycle and explain how certain things are done so that they can go in and fix it themselves later, right? Or, or move, moving forward, they can fix it later, fix it. Uh, for the stuff that they do moving forward instead of having to nitpick them down. So it all depends on how much, how many code reviews you're going to be doing, how much time you have and what the priorities are on the project. I was going to actually ask you what the workflow is a little bit, because my thought was as I would read through somebody's code, I would write my notes roughly wherever I write it, whether it's in my IDE as comments or whatever the standard your team has decided, right? Whatever it is. And, or in, in Microsoft Word, even whatever. I'd write my co- my comments as I thought of them. So I would that map versus for each. If I had that thought, I would actually write that down. Like maps a little bit faster. Or this is a little bit faster in this instance, whatever. And then then my proofread, I'd go back and be like, oh, this is 0.2 seconds. And I would just delete that point. And I was yep. thinking, like, are you reading the whole bit of code that you like the whole let's say it's you just reviewing a function, singular function. Um, are you actually reading the whole function and then making notes or as you're going through you're jotting notes, because that's how I would think I would do it is I'd write it really, you know, that would be my over explain and my rough over explain and rough just, you know, as I read it, that this is faster. That's this, this, that, then I'd go back and be like, nitpick, 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 rewrite this. So it's not four points. Okay. Boom. So, uh, it's kind of both. Uh, and the way that the, the, the process works is usually it's done on your Git website. So GitHub, GitLab, Bitbucket, whatever. Directly inside the pull request, you're able to start like a draft review so that anything that you write there isn't going to be immediately shared with the person. And you're able to write those notes. So as you go, you can write those notes uh, and you can quickly write notes. But as you get into a section that maybe you're not clear of, you might need to go and read like another file that they changed and another file that they changed depending on how many import statements there are. So this one might be importing from a new file that they wrote. So you have to go down there. So you might have to read a lot of context to understand one line, right? So as you go, you're kind of confident this will work, confident this will work, confident that you have a good response like the map response that this is 0.2% faster. Maybe you write that down. So very similar to how you said, but it is both ways. Right. So you sometimes you might have to read everything to come up with a comment or to come up with no comment being like, oh, that works. Then you don't have to write anything. Um, and sometimes you have to go through just one line and you'll know what to say. So it, and it is a good idea to kind of draft it and then go back through your draft and make sure that you have everything there. But sometimes you don't. Sometimes you screw up and it's OK to screw up in a code review as well, as long as you're OK with having a little bit of that back and forth. So with the code, with the code reviews, uh, just from the, the actual person that's sending the code for review, make sure to keep them small, right? So as small as possible, I don't have a metric for you. Every project is going to be different, but like a good amount of files, I would say is like three to five. That would be awesome. Uh, if you've changed three to five files, maybe like, you know, a couple, like a hundred, hundred lines of code or something like that. It, that's an ideal metric. I, I don't think that that's possible all across the board. If you have 10 files, 11 files, that's also been okay. When you're approaching like 30 to 50 files changed with thousands of lines of code, the the quality of the code review is going to go down no matter what. It's just too difficult to expect a developer to you know check every line that you've written, test everything that you've written, and provide insightful comments on everything that you've written if that's the size and scope of the review that they need to do. I'm not going to say that I've never put in a review that big. I have. And the reality is, is that I have either overburdened the developer doing the review or I got back an incomplete code review in my own, through my own fault. And it's the same way back and forth. Like when I, when I get submitted that kind of review, it's just not feasible for me to spend a, a full day reviewing your code to give you the perfect response to every little line, right? So it's just difficult. The other thing, um, I like to run the code as much as I possibly can when I'm reviewing, especially when it's something I don't understand, 
So a lot of times people will review directly inside of GitHub, give the response. And I do that sometimes, but like a lot of times it's like, oh, I, I don't understand how this new invalidation thing will work. I need to run it. So ideally, if you don't know how to like test a certain area, that's a good idea. That's a good metric for you to write a test or for you to ask them to write a test, or you have to go in and like figure out how to essentially simulate the thing that they have created. That can take extra time. But again, you go back to your priorities. If this is affecting the security of your database or the security of user information, right? That's when you start to lean on, okay, I have to run this code and I have to test it. If this is, if this pull request is only affecting a, uh, you know, a user page that's only viewed one every one million times, a very, a very niche feature that's barely ever going to be used and that doesn't touch the database. You probably don't need to run the code. So go back to your priorities. Always go back to your priorities. You need to be effect, efficient at what you're doing. If it's a critical thing, spend more time. If it's less critical, spend less time. I was going to actually ask you a question about that. So you were talking about junior developers being brought into the code review process. And obviously, I would assume that if the team is managed well, that the junior dev would be given easier to understand code uh, in order to sort of expand their knowledge and practice at code review itself. But there's bound to be things that they don't understand. As a junior developer, like as a junior developer on the team, or even just a senior dev that doesn't understand and even after running and doing whatever they don't understand, do you just give it the green light? Do you just ignore it? How do you handle a situation like that where you yourself are sort of like, I don't know what that is? Oh, if you don't know what like something is in the code? Yeah. So if you if you see like you're reviewing three functions and one of the functions you've run the code, you've messed around with it, you've done whatever. And let's just say you're a junior dev in this particular example and you like objectively wouldn't have written it like that. And you syntax wise do not understand what is going on. Can you give your sign off on that? Should you give your sign off on that because it's running or do you say, hey, I don't know what this is? Yeah, you can say, I don't know what this is. Okay. Yeah. Can you explain this, please? I, I do that. Yeah. That, that's another really, really good point. If you have questions, ask questions. Okay. You don't have to approve until they've answered the question. Okay. Because I'm sure junior devs would look, look at it, start to panic, be like, I don't know what this is. I don't know what this is. And then spend God knows how long, right? Researching the different syntax even, right? Especially if you're a junior dev, you're not, you're not used to all the different methods and syntax and whatever. And then you're going to be like, what is going on here? Yep, one hundred percent. And again, that this is the way that you learn from other people, right? Like you, if you don't understand it, you're you're forcing the junior dev to look at code that they're probably going to have trouble reviewing. It's true, and hopefully, yes, you are making them look at less critical code and easier stuff to understand. Uh, but still, like it's still going to be confusing. So you need to have a method of them to them a method for them to ask questions and to learn from these code reviews. There has to be a positive. To both scenarios. So yeah, right. Co- ask okay. questions. It's a great idea. Um, the last thing here, I do a lot of my code reviews inside of VS Code. Uh, I try, like sometimes I do on GitHub, but like I've switched to using VS Code because it can catch TypeScript errors really easily. And that's easier for me to kind of be like, if again, if, if it's important, if, the, if it's TypeScript is important in this particular scenario, it's easier for me to find that issue and send a review being like, hey, there's some sort of TypeScript issue here. Um, that's kind of my last little suggestion on the code review side. Uh, there's a lot we can discuss on code reviews. This is not a comprehensive discussion and guide. Uh, I might do something more in the future where we do another episode that dives deeper into it, or I'll do a video on it because I think it is important. And I, I personally want to get better at it. So I need to del- delve further into it myself. With that, uh, last topic here. Why is everything copying PHP? So just a little background on this. Uh, if you haven't noticed, a lot of the frameworks out there, um, React in particular, is going towards a paradigm that's very similar to how PHP works. So React server components came out and Next.js then supported them using the app router, Right which essentially means that there is a an enti- like you can componentize your entire framework like your entire website into either server or client components so you have again a mix of both 
inside of one single page. And this is very reminiscent of, of a PHP me- method of how PHP worked back. Like it, it, and works right now. It is a server side language where you can kind of have both the client side and the server side. Now, your client side on, on the PHP will have to be written with JavaScript and your server side is PHP, but the paradigm is very similar, right? The other thing is, is that a lot of state, like simple state control now went from being very complex, like Redux state management or passing it back and forth using uh, context providers to just sharing state inside of the URL with, with query parameters. This is, an, this is an old new thing that's happening in frameworks and people are really adopting it. This is very reminiscent of how PHP worked and how PHP still works. A lot of people will still do state in URL for working with PHP websites for sharing state between two different pages, right? It's really easy. You just take, put a bunch of parameters in the URL and then you read those parameters on the next page and you have, boom, this is shared state. It's great because you can also take that URL that has, has been generated, give it to your friend, and they'll have the exact same version of that web page, right? Without having to do any sort of magic uh, with like, you know, database sharing or whatever you would have to do in that scenario. So the shift has been happening and people are being like, a lot of people are questioning like, well, why are we shifting from client side JavaScript frameworks now all of a sudden being server frameworks with client-side capabilities. And like the take that I have, and again, this isn't gospel, this isn't something that you can, you know, this isn't guarantee. Uh, but the take that I have is that we aren't going towards PHP. We're just going towards a better framework and a more flexible framework to be used across the entire stack. Right. Like PHP is very different in the sense that you have to write PHP. You have to write server code using a completely different language. The ability of React to be able to be run both on server and on client separately, right, and still communicate with each other with key is a huge bonus. You, you have one mindset. You're writing React code. You're writing JavaScript on both sides. You're you're deploying one package. You're not deploying a separate backend and a front end. You're deploying a full stack application that's running on the same code base with the same code, the same components, right? Now, obviously, there's a little bit of difference when you're writing a server component versus a client component. You can't do some of the React magic. But regardless, it is a, a much easier shift from writing a completely separate language to then writing the same one on both sides. So, in my eyes, this isn't copying PHP. React, like React isn't copying PHP by introducing React server components. It's adapting to a new par- to a new paradigm of writing code across full stack, across backend and frontend applications. And it's taking some, insp- I, I don't know if, you know, I don't, I, I want to say it's not inspirations. It's taking, it's taking methodologies of a backend framework. It's not just PHP that wrote backend. Like C Sharp was a backend framework. Like there's plenty of other backend languages. It's taking those methodologies, the best parts of them, and integrating it into a quote unquote front-end framework that now can write backend code. Right. So it's not PHP, it's just backend. It's just really smart ways to use the backend using the code that you've already written and you're familiar with. I, I don't know. Like it, it's a weird thing to say that everything is moving towards an older version when it's just learning from it, right? Like we're just yes, it's a little bit weird that we go from we we constantly have this cycle of going from uh, server side rendering to client side rendering to server side rendering to client side rendering. That's but that's like that's just a technology. That's just technology, and that's just the zeitgeist and whatever, whatever you want to say. Uh, the reality is that we're just trying to figure out better ways to do things and new ways are being thought up. There's some mistakes being made and fixed and made and fixed. And eventually, hopefully we're going to have a more stabilized system, but I, I don't want to stifle innovation either. Like I don't want there to, to be a point where we're just like, no, we're done. There, there is only React and Svelte and Vue. We don't want any more frameworks. We don't want any more paradigms and methodologies. Uh, we're good because then we won't have anything better. I'd rather people move and break things and do stupid things like maybe you do a completely different framework that doesn't work. 
but have the opportunity for learning from all the other ones that do and build something better, even to the complexity of the people learning, right? Like I, th- this does confuse people. I'm not saying that it doesn't. This isn't a perfect solution. This isn't perfect for like onboarding new developers into the web development space, but that's the sacrifice you make for progress in terms of making a better web. The framework conversation of too many frameworks is, you know, a meme in and of itself. Um, I like the take that you don't want to stifle innovation. You don't want to kind of step on anyone's toes. And and you, and I kind of, the thing I think I was thinking of is there's a reason why different companies will compete. And I know that frameworks aren't necessarily companies, although yes, they can have affiliations with companies and yada, yada. But my idea, my thought was like, you know, there's a reason why different car manufacturers do things the way they do. There's a reason why different, you know, countries will do certain things the way they do, govern different ways and yada, yada. You know, the list goes on. And so like frameworks is almost in a way that, but it's, it's a weird, um, it's a, it's in a weird space because people swap jobs all the time, meaning that there's a high chance of them swapping tools all the time. And so there's going to be a growing frustration there where, Someone who's, say, a junior dev works at a place until they're a senior dev. Okay, now they're a senior dev and they're looking for a job. They go find another job because they get a raise. Okay, great. They go find that job. They're a senior dev that doesn't really have experience with the new tooling of the other place. They work there for two or three years. They go job hop again, which is very, very common. Every three years or so, you job hop. So then you job hop again, you get a raise. Uh Uh-oh, now we have another problem. And that is that that is that we have... Uh, another tool and I have to learn another tool. And it's almost like you're, you've worked your way up to, you know, the mastery of something and you're constantly being pulled back down. And some people love that where they constantly have something to learn and constantly something to innovate on. But other people, they want to put the work in and work hard and do the grind to get to that mastery level and they want to sit there. And I think that that is very, uh, understandable. And you, you do see that, I think, in other industries as well, where you have somebody who's a lifer, where they stay in the same job because they know the people, they know the culture, the work culture there, they know the methodologies, they know the management team. And yeah, they see, they see changes as regulations change, as the management team retires and new people are brought in, but it's a gradual change. Whereas you do see people that jump around where they go, oh, I'm going to be a radio host for five years and then I'm going to go and fix cars and then I'm going to go and work on roads and then I'm going to go install garage door openers. You know, it's it, it, it there's, a lot, there's people that do that where they jump around just completely different industries, whether it's just due to boredom or whether due to money or whatever the reason is. Um, but I, I there's there's like few industries other than internet industries in general, right? Because we're all connected via social media and that. And that's that goes beyond just web developers and developers where we're so connected that you know, things become memes, things become, hey, you know, this is getting annoying. You're constantly learning new things. I'm constantly being, you know, out, outdated. Like this is, this is crazy and I get that. And then there's also the argument as well where something like WordPress, people keep saying WordPress is trash and no one uses it. And it's like, yeah, only, was it 43%, I think? At last I heard of websites run on WordPress and it's like, well, WordPress is PHP and there's other technologies in there, but WordPress is PHP and I'm pretty sure jQuery is in there too. And jQuery is allegedly dead as well. So it, it is a, it is a back and forth. It is a problem. And it, I don't know really, I, I hesitate to call it a problem, but it, it's the first word that comes to mind when it comes to stuff like this, right? Where it, it feels like. Now, with this, to bring it back to like kind of exactly what Mike said, we have a framework that went away from PHP, ran away from it, if you will, pushed a bunch of stuff onto the server or onto the client side. And then now they're like, hang on, those old buggers over there, they're doing pretty good. Let's go back to that PHP version, but we're not going to go back to PHP. And it almost sounds it almost seems like an act of defiance. I'm not going back to PHP. I'm just going to emulate PHP, but with JavaScript this time. And so there, there is going to be controversy there. Right. And and even what I said is almost like an inflammatory way of uh, an inflammatory take on it is that. They like it's almost like they're too proud to go back to PHP. And, and is that the case? I don't know. Like Mike mentioned, you know, there's more flexibility in using JavaScript and like that's a good argument. And so. There, like, this is a mess, right? Like, even me talking, I've talked about a whole bunch of things, and this is exactly what sort of happens in the community. 
And it's because people drop off so much is because we're all connected online because we're literally working online as web developers. We make websites. And so we see this stuff all the time. Ru- I hear Ruby on Rails is dead all the time. The other day, I, I, I rarely use Dev.2, to be clear. I just started using Dev.2 to repost some of our articles. And I find out it's made on fucking Ruby on Rails. So, yep. like, <laughs> what's going on here? Yep, Angular still being used a ton. Ruby on Rails still being used a ton. We just found out that Joomla is releasing versions left, right, and center. Like, the stuff that we think is dead isn't dead, uh, nor will it will be. Uh, but in the zeitgeist, it is, right? Like, a lot of the stuff that that has been around for a long time that is stuck in their ways, maybe, or not. I don't know. A- apparently, Angular re- released a new version that supports a bunch of new stuff, and it's awesome now. So, like, I like that. I, I don't... I. Personally, I know it's chaos and I know it's kind of weird, but I kind of love it. I kind of love the the stuff kind of fighting each other and coming like coming up with new ways to do things that have already been solved 15 times that don't need it. Um, it's it's just fun. And from a, from a purely content perspective, it generates a lot of interest, uh, right? Like it's really easy to talk about a new framework that comes out that comes out with a completely different paradigm of how to handle state versus talking about PHP for the 800th time that's finished. Like it's done. It's good. Like they figure it out. (laughs) There's not much that they can really improve on at this point to return back into the zeitgeist. I'm sure it'll happen, but that's the, that's where it comes up. There's so much to do in the web space. And I think there's plenty of room for all of these different frameworks. Um, to be popping up and down, I should say, like not all of them to live. I don't think that we're going to have, you know, 20,000 frameworks at all times. I think there is going to be a cycle of like, hey, here's a framework that comes out. It's cool, but we don't need it. It's probably going to go down, down in popularity and, and something else will come up and maybe it will stabilize at some point. I do think that that is going to happen. Um, as JavaScript gets a lot of stuff built into it that frameworks have been trying to figure out similar to how like jQuery was phased out a little bit. It's not completely phased out, but it was phased out a little bit for all the native JavaScript functionality. Frameworks, in my opinion, are going to center on something. It's already starting to happen a little bit. You can take a look at the new version of Svelte that's coming out with Signals. It's very similar to how Vue is doing it, right? And there's like a version of React that also integrates Signals. So like all of these frameworks are kind of converging into one ultimate method of doing things. Um, with little differentiations, which I think is good. Like they're all learning from each other. They're all competing. They're all coming up with stuff. It's cool. Uh, but eventually something will probably stabilize and we'll have the ultimate framework or something. I don't know, but let, um, let me, let me ask you a question yeah. actually on this. And this might be like a controversial take. So I'm going to relate this. I do this all the time to the car industry just because it's simple. It's mechanical. It's easy to understand in general, right? You think about it way back model T. Okay. Model T is the first. One of the first, you know, commercially widespread, if not the literally the commercial, the first commercially widespread vehicle. There were other cars before it. I understand that. But it it was slow. You know, we didn't have all the conveniences of today. There weren't radios and this and that. And they started adding options like split windows for air conditioning, kind of, if you will, to allow, you know, air in and, and those type of things. And like really simple things that they started to add to it. But if you think about it, the car industry got faster. It got more powerful it got you know cooler to some people think and then the style sort of like plateaus in the eyes of many right where the modern car is just sort of like this is this is energy efficient or, or this is um this is like aerodynamic for energy efficiency and that's just sort of what defines cars a lot of cars today and so your sort of boxy cars of the 50s 60s and 70s have kind of gone away right and the muscle cars have kind of gone away for more realistic driving but the, the industry seems to kind of have like push forward, right? Where, you know, the, everyone has like a favorite era type of thing, uh, more power, more gas, more this, more that. But as things have gone on, you know, we, we have, you know, the same ice engines, internal combustion engines, but then eventually they figure out EcoBoost and they figure out ways to make it more efficient and ways for it to pass emissions tests uh, that governments do and way for it to, right? So like you can kind of like still trace sort of a path, whether you agree with the emissions test or not or whatever. It's not what I'm arguing here. When you were talking there about, you know, oh, like frameworks are going to come and go and drop off and not drop off and this and that. Is this. Is the sort of controversy an underlying underlyingly. A worry 
is the community kind of subconsciously worried about a lack of progress toward cool things. And what I mean by that is this. Think about this. You build a website out in some sort of framework. I'm just going to call it framework A. So you use, you use framework A. The site's super cool. And so you, you know, you do, you, you have some cool technology in there, whatever. You get some traction. It's a nice, you know, whether it's a niche site or whether it's a cool web app tool, maybe it's a combination of that. And so you are commercially successful. And so you dive into it and you like really learn framework A, you, because you want to make efficient, you want to be efficient at making changes, adding new features to this website in order to capitalize on your commercial success. And then the support for that framework drops off. And let's say it, it's not like a jQuery situation where jQuery is very much still alive, but it's quote unquote dead in the eyes of the community. Let's say it's actually dead. Framework A is not supported. It's starting to become dated. Now you're left learning another framework and learning something else to make the same tool. And so you're not actually arguably moving forward anymore. You are reinventing that wheel and it's a limit. This is going to sound really weird, but it's a limit on coolness. You could think of it as where you're not making that eco boost. You're not making that bigger engine. You're not going from, you know, 19 miles an hour to 28, which is like a big jump back then. Right. You're not doing that. You are quite simply and without fail, you are running in a circle at a degree. And the trend is still up. You know, that new framework that you learned maybe is now capable of these other things, but you're wasting time. You're now learning another tool. You're doing this, you're doing that. And, and, and it's, so it's a, it's a question. It's a question of that is, are we reinventing the wheel over and over and over and over and over again? And we're spending time arguing when what we're really losing is some really cool stuff from people that have really mastered things. Like if you look at, I add like a WordPress site, right? WordPress is like pretty, you know, pretty uh, much a staple of the industry. But it, like, like I said, it's running on a bunch of other technologies, but also PHP, like largely PHP. That's what it's, that's the back end of it, handling the databases and the CMS interactions and, you know, yada, yada, whatever. Right. And so people have, you know, stretched WordPress to the limit. They've made it a headless CMS. They've made it a page editor. They've made it this and that, this and that, this and that. And so WordPress itself as a technology has continued getting better, even though it's built on these old things. And WordPress, you know, 10 years ago is vastly different than WordPress now. There's a lot of similarities. And if you haven't used WordPress in 10 years, you're going to, you know, be familiar with it. But there's been a lot of changes. There's, there's communities just built around plugins now, like Elementor and stuff like that. And so, is this JavaScript framework game, like you're saying it's all conglomerating into one, is the JavaScript framework game a waste of time? And, I, and I'm serious when I say that. Is it a waste of time? I don't know if it is. I'm not making an opinion there. It, but is it? Is it really like it is the controversy as, a, as like a final note, is the controversy a subconscious cry in the lack of coolness that we could have because we keep reinventing how to do a forum do a, do a marketing site, have a slider. Like, come on. Like we're arguing about like, what's more efficient, like a map or for each. Does it, was it working on 99% of the computers? Yes. Woo. Like, is that really what we're arguing over? Why don't we move on from sliders? Right? Like, uh, is, is that, is that what's happening here? I'm going to say no, uh, with some caveats. I think some people can get stuck in a cyclical loop of learning the basic fundamentals of each framework and then going back and learning the basic fundamentals of each framework again and not going deep, right? Like the ideal is you need to pick something like, especially if you're trying to get it break into the industry, you need to pick something most likely going to be react because that's going to have the most jobs at the moment and go really deep, figure out how react works, figure out how all the different rendering engines work inside. Like how, just do all the edge cases, Right, like build an app in React that's complex, that fetches data, that has authentication, and you'll figure out the edge cases. You'll figure out the pain points. Okay, you'll get to a point where you're pretty comfortable with with React at some point, and you're you're going to be good. The issue comes in where like instead of doing that, you're like, well, I'm just going to build a, a little preview application in Svelte. I don't like Svelte. I'm going to build a little application in Vue. I don't like Vue. I'm going to build a little application in React. I don't like React. I'm going to build a little application in Saw. I don't like Saw. Like, and you can go on like this forever. Like I, I'm mentioning four there. There's thousands. 
that might be over exaggerating, but there are, there's like a ridiculous amount of frameworks that all have very similar features. That's not the right way to go about it, in my opinion. You need to pick one. You need to go deep. Whether if you don't want to do React and you don't care about like the fact that it's the most popular one and you really like Vue or you really like Svelte, go deep in one of those. Because what's going to happen is you're going to understand fundamentally what these frameworks are doing. At the end of the day, it is running on top of JavaScript. So having a good fundamental knowledge of JavaScript on top of framework knowledge is going to make it easy for you to then be like, I don't care about frameworks. It doesn't matter what I use. I can use like the, you know, tomorrow a new framework will come up. It's going to have similar paradigms. It's going to have a similar structure, a little bit of a different syntax. It does image processing way better. I need a website that is going to process 5 million images. I'm going to use this new framework. It's not going to be an issue. I'll have to learn a little bit of the new syntax, but I've already conquered these weird edge cases in React. It's probably going to be similar in this framework in terms of like troubleshooting techniques and maybe even the same solutions, right? It's very, the knowledge that you gain from going deep in one is very transferable to almost any of them down across the spectrum. So it's not that big a deal to jump between them once you get a good understanding. There's specific use cases for almost all of them that perform better than each other. And maybe that's the way you go. You just become a specialist in figuring out what the right tool is for the right job. But you can't get there unless you're good at framework development. I think like like understanding frameworks is your number one goal because it's just become really complex in the, in the sense that they do so much for you that if you don't understand the nitty gritty details, it, it does hinder you and you will not like go forward. You'll go in a cyclical manner. Well, what what is your thought then on the mentality or maybe like, I don't know if it's the mentality, but it's like the the direction of stuff. So like you mentioned a few episodes ago, I can't even remember, but it was like a new, there was like, you, you know, there's Svelte, which is your front end, there's your Svelte kit, which is closely related, but it's more the back end stuff, grabbing APIs and such. And then there was like something else where it's like TRP or PCR or some some dang thing that you were talking about. And that's like another way to like compare your code or something. And it's like those, I don't know what, I don't know if you know what I'm talking about. PCR or something. I'm probably like naming like 4,000 charities acronyms accidentally, but not sure. it's like, I, I remember you talking about it. It was like, a, there's like another component in there that allows you to like interact with a database differently. I remember it was almost sure. like a driver for a database. And it's like, that is a mentality oh. change. That is a, you know what I'm talking about now? Yes. Yeah. TR- what is TRPC. It? Yeah. That's it. Never, never going to remember that. It's going to be a disaster, okay. but like that is like something else that even if you went deep into say Svelte, Svelte kit comes out, you go deep into Svelte kit, then that thing comes out. It's like, now you're, now we're building this again, this mountain of knowledge and you're just building a marketing site again. It depends, but that's the thing. Like, I wouldn't use something that complex for a marketing site. Sure. This all comes down to, like, what are you building? How many database connections do you need? Like, why why do you need the type safety on the database? That's what TRPC does. Like, what? why do you need this stuff? Like, you shouldn't be using technology just to use it unless you're learning stuff. But you should be very specific in what you add and what you use. Like, if, if it's just a marketing site, you're using frame or motion or Webflow or whatever. Like, that's... Like, it doesn't make sense to use anything else. You don't build a marketing site in React unless you have, like, other things that you're going to build on top of it. Right. It just, yeah, you don't do that. Like, there, there's many reasons why you don't, for the most part. You you need to use the right tool for the job. There's a lot of tools out there. And knowing what the right tool for the job is a whole other conversation that we can go through. But it's just, yeah, like, I, I, I think the idea that all projects are marketing sites is wrong. Like, there are a lot of projects that require complex UI creation, deletion, and manipulation that just don't fit the typical tools that make it easy for you to like do it visually, right? Um, and that's where these frameworks shine. But, you know, for the most part, like most of the web isn't that, like, isn't these complex projects that you're going to need. Like most of it is just static sites or really simple applications or documentation or something like little e-commerce sites. Yeah. Like a couple hundred bucks a year or something they sell. Exactly. That you would use like Shopify for like, 
Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like, like as the, as the use cases, I guess that's a, a measure of progress is that as the use cases become mundane, they get eaten up by other platforms. Like a, like, like a literal tool comes out that just does it. Because I remember like Stripe was an example of like an evolution in in e-commerce still around, of course, but now, you know, you could just Shopify it. I mean, you could just Stripe with Shopify too. Like there's, there's just, it's really cool. The the landscape of e-commerce has become mundane. I I, I like the way you put that. Like just when it becomes mundane, when a complex process becomes mundane, then it's matured. Then it's, yeah, we've, we've progressed past it. Cause what I meant by yeah. with Stripe is that Stripe was largely, as far as I remember, was designed so that, you know, with your custom website, like largely a PHP site, mm-hmm. you could easily, you know, have like your cart and your, um, your transaction go through securely, more or less. Yeah. Uh, with, with, with a custom site. Obviously it's that, that product itself has evolved to plug into WordPress and a million other things now. Um, but yeah, like an e commerce site, like if I desperately needed to sell my phone and for some reason didn't want to use, I don't know, Kijiji, which is like the Craigslist of Canada, then I would use, then I could, you know, I could make an e-commerce site to list this phone in like 15 minutes. R- like, really, you know, like, that's not even a joke. Webflow template, WordPress template, whatever, WooCommerce or just Webflow e-commerce, and that's it. Right? And, and I'm sure Wix and Squarespace have those too. So um, that's a good point. But I think that's it. I think we've uh, discussed those topics. If you, if anyone ha- else has any opinions that they want to share with us at HTML, everything on Twitter, uh, at HTML things on Instagram and TikTok, I think. Reach yep. out. I'm very curious to know. Yeah, uh, yeah. If you, so, if you want to reach out to me, I'm I'm doing the TikTok and the Instagram. If you want to reach out to the, uh, you want to reach out to Mike, he's running the official Twitter, uh, and I'm also on there as well. If you care to reach out on there, Mike tags me all the time, so you can find me on there. And uh, I think that concludes this episode. I'm actually like verbally tired. Which yep. means I think it's a good episode. I hope that you enjoyed it as the listener. And if you want to support episodes like this, remember we are on Patreon. That is patreon.com slash HTML, all the things. And remember, we also have a Scrimba affiliate link. If you want to get a discount on a Scrimba plan and learn with an interactive code editor slash media player, go check them out. And before we leave, many thanks to our $3 tier patrons. Ryan Gatchel from Blue Black Digital on blueblackdigital.com. Tim from The Web Hacker on thewebhacker.com. Jason from Geek Life Radio via geekliferadio.com. Michael Curie from MC Web Studio via mcwebstudio.ca. Magnus from YesWeb via yesweb.se. Jeff from Twitter via at the Jeff and Kale. Fire Ant Season via fireantseason.com. Gunner Burnett via gunnerburnett.com. Watoto Coding via watotocoding.com. Garrett Segal and Level Up Financial Planning via www.levelupfinancialplanning.com. Feel free to leave a comment or review in the platform that you are listening to this on. And this outro will sign us off. You've been listening to HTML All The Things Podcast. Web development, web design, and small business. We hope you've gotten some useful and practical information from this show. And we hope you appreciate that we talk to you like human beings. And we hope you had some fun. We'll be back soon. But in the meantime, hit us up on social media. On Facebook, Instagram, and Patreon at HTML All The Things. And on Twitter at HTML Everything. Until next time, this is HTML All The Things. Signing off.